This is the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast, presented by eCity Interactive. eCity creates websites, marketing campaigns, and magic for higher ed institutions, large and small. Every digital challenge has a solution. eCity's talented team of problem solvers will help you find yours. And now, here's your host, Stephen App. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 12 of the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. I am your host, Stephen App. We have a really cool show today. This is a topic that I've been really itching to get recorded for this podcast series, and I'm so glad that I finally found someone to come on the show and, uh, and chat about it. That someone is, of course, uh, Jens Larson. He is the Director of Student Communications at Eastern Washington University, uh, and we're going to be talking about list buying. So let's jump right into it. Uh, Jens Larson, thank you so much for joining the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. Oh, excited to be here. Longtime listener and lurker. I would imagine that so many people who are listening to this episode understand the concept of, you know, we'll, we'll say list buying, name buying, search campaigns. It goes by so many different names. Um, but for, for the uninitiated, for those who maybe aren't um, actively engaged in this marketing tactic. What can you tell us from a high level about list buying? Uh, list buying is simply where you give your money to somebody else in exchange for a bunch of student data. It's pretty common. Like uh, I think the last figures that I've been able to find are from a 2010 uh, New York Times article where they mentioned that College Board at that point was selling about 80 million names a year to about 1,200 institutions. My suspicion is now they're probably closer to about 150 million names a year to institutions, although it's hard to say because they don't release that data. So an institution is going to go to a, a vendor like NRCCUA, NARCUA, or they're going to go to College Board, SAT, or maybe to ACT or CBSS, and they're going to purchase, usually for less than 50 cents, the names of a bunch of students who didn't say they were interested in the institution, but did kind of give these organizations permission to uh, sell their data. Uh, the other way that institutions acquire names is through uh, purchasing lists from organizations or uh, companies that have actually had students express interest in them. So a good example of this is uh, CapEx or Carnegie Communications. They run some of their magazines like PCNU, uh, where students can request information and they can uh, then sell that information back to the, to the college saying, hey, we've got a bunch of students who are interested in you. Do you want to know who they are? Uh, and those are really sort of the two ways that institutions buy student data. There are some really sketchy places. If you really want, you can buy data, student data from ASL, but they got sued. So I'm not sure that's a great place to get the data. Uh, but it's a pretty good racket when you think about it from the particularly the SAT and ACT scenario. And ACT just bought Narcua. So there's a lot of value in it from a, from a straight sales and marketing standpoint. But uh, you provide the test that the students are required to take in order to go to college, and then you sell that data to the colleges so that they can market to the students who are required to take the test. It feels a little dicey sometimes, but that's the way it works, and lots of institutions do it. It feels like we're talking about two different levels, I guess, here, right? Because you have the one side of things where these students did not signal interest in your school. Uh, they don't know that you're going to be contacting them or, or maybe at this point, 
they assume that someone is going to be contacting them um, if they have family who have gone through the process already. And then we have the, the other level, which seems, you know, from an ethical standpoint, certainly not, not in a dangerous area where we, where we have students who are signaling interest about a particular school. Um, and from that standpoint, I, I would imagine the issue is a lot more just on the financial ROI of those tactics versus um, maybe the ethical gray area of the tactic. Is, is that right? Yeah. So like, once you get over the ethical hurdle, it's really a question of ROI. I mean, it should always be a question of ROI when you're talking about marketing spend um, and marketing mix. But uh, the ethical issues can be really dicey, and maybe it's talk about those some more later. But the ROI is a really interesting, interesting place to be. Um, I like list buying is super frustrating, actually, if you've actually managed the process yourself. So you go out and you purchase these students. And some institutions are purchasing millions of names. I remember once listening to ASU, Arizona State University, talk about how they were just purchasing the name of every student west of the Mississippi, Hmm. uh, which is just an immense... Just a few students. Yeah, just a few students, a couple (laughs) million. It's like a multi-million dollar name buy. And if they were getting a great conversion rate on that, like nobody else in the west of the Mississippi would have any students. Uh, So the conversion rates are really low. So you go through the process, you purchase the names. Sometimes our purchase list, 25 to 50 percent of them are students who are already in the system somewhere. They requested information. They sent FAFSA. Uh, they took a tour. They raised their hand some other way through another vendor. And we already knew that they were interested. But you don't know what, who is in your list before you buy it. So you end up with a lot of this extra duplication. Then when you go and plug the syst- names into your CRM or into your various systems and you start communicating with them, you're going to get a 3 to 4% bounce rate, which is so frustrating. Uh, it's like getting your fall fair piece right off the press and then immediately throwing like three to five percent of them into the garbage behind the mail room. It's just uh, it feels like a waste right from the get go. And then from that point, you're working with students uh, to get them through the funnel. But what's really interesting is that like you see it in the website data. The time to get a student is when they're most interested and ready to make a decision. And you can nurture leads for a long time if you're purchasing sophomores or juniors. Uh, But in the moment when they want to make a decision, they usually make it really fast. uh, We do a lot of research on how students behave on the web. And we see that when a student requests information, that if we can get them to apply within the first three days, we've got about a 97% chance of getting them through to application completion. But after that, it just falls off the chart. Like there's no way we can get them through. So you really kind of have to strike while the iron is hot. And uh, it's paralleled a little bit by some of the things we know about the way that students approximate quality at an institution. Judging academic quality is notoriously hard for students. Uh, And a lot of data on international students shows that the way that they do it is they approximate how uh, academically strong an institution is by how quickly they manage their response rates and how engaged individuals are at a personal level with them in that process. And list buying is kind of the exact opposite opposite of that process. It's where you purchase a bunch of students who you think are alike, and then you send them in mass a bunch of communications. And I'll be really candid. Uh, I secret shop about 200 institutions a year. So my inquired student gets scooped up in a lot of these campaigns. And a lot of these 
institutions are using the same vendors uh, to run these campaigns. And I actually have folders now where I get a piece from an institution and I just shove it into that folder. And the folder is labeled by the vendor who is managing their campaign. And it's to the point where my student workers and graduate student assistants who help file some of this stuff, even they can recognize, oh, this is a piece that's coming from Spectrum or, oh, this is a piece that EAB Royal did. It's really easy to see what it is because those organizations that support institutions through the name buying and search process are largely dumping out the same sort of formats, the same content, and the same messages. I guess, Jens, you're talking about nurturing, and I'm thinking you're right. If, if you're being lumped in with marketing material that looks like every other school, is, is there a benefit to saying we're not going to purchase names of those who are maybe you know spring semester juniors and seniors taking the test we're going to try to get them as sophomores and nurture them so that that by the time they do take the test we have a head start on some of these competing organizations is there more sense in that i mean i'm just thinking from a pure roi perspective at this point yeah there is a there's value to starting earlier but it's a really interesting uh question because uh, students took the test or filled out the Narcua card and at that point literally said, we're not interested in you. Because if they were interested in you, they would have sent you the they would have sent you their test scores or they would have uh, indicated to NRCCOA that uh, they were interested. And Narcua is happy to sell you that information, too. You can buy those uh, names separately so you can get the students who are already interested in you at any point that they've started to raise their hand. It's, well, it's really interesting, too, is that when you look at the ways that institutions do this, um, for example, you, uh, you just had the director down from Georgia on the podcast, and he was talking about his blog. And it's really interesting. Most institutions don't have any resources like that. MIT is another one that does it. And there are a few others who have a blog that really makes sense where they're actually nurturing students through. So the students who are interested are finding engaging and useful content at all stages of their journey. And so what institutions do when they buy sophomores and even junior names is they typically are are buying those names and not providing any digital or website experiences that provide sort of the engagement opportunity there. So yes, there's value to it, but only if you've already done the fundamental work of putting in engagement pieces where students can get to your other platforms and find the same level of service and marketing expertise that they're getting in their direct mail and email campaigns. The thing that I think is is interesting about this, and, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you know, let's say you're going to purchase a name from, from Narcua uh, you know, and someone who has indicated interest in your school. From an ROI perspective, you're, of course, more likely to see a response from a direct mail piece or an email blast uh, to those students because they've signaled interest in your school. The thing that I think higher ed always wrestles with is that those students probably would have already come to your website on their own behalf if they're interested in that institution and perhaps have filled out an RFI form or signaled their interest in another way. But but we don't know that for sure, right? And it's I think it's that lack of clarity, that lack of a guarantee that leads people to to buy those the names of the students who have signaled the intent. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
it's really interesting to think about how whist buying arose as a practice because it didn't really exist before the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s. And so McGuire and Associates or McGuire Associates is what I think they're called now. When they uh, originally sort of launched this, it was the they were taking the tactics that they'd learned from political campaigns and applying them to the nonprofit sector for really the first time. I mean, there were some direct mail campaigns that had existed historically, uh, but nothing really uh, that was as strategic as what they were then proposing. And so for the first time, it was a way to actually get into the homes of students and their families. Uh, before that, like you had to have dollars for radio spots or for TV ads, and most institutions just didn't have that. Or you had to rely on your NCAA programs. And even then, the marketing and television value of those programs was a little bit less. So at the time, like this was the most measurable way, easy way to do it. Like you knew that you'd bought their name and then you knew if they'd applied or if they'd enrolled at your institution. So it was this really fantastic, measurable way to get results. Um, and so it become really, really easy to report on. Uh, what's interesting is that the way we get into homes now is drastically different. I mean, you've got multiple devices, you've got different ways to access those devices, you've got different ways to co-brand or multi-screen or engage with students on different levels. Uh, students are looking for us on social media. Um, I mean, the home that we're trying to get into is really the device that's sitting in their pocket. I mean, 95% of students now have a smartphone device. Um and they're checking it, 45% of them say they're on it almost all, all day long. That's really where a lot of the opportunity is. But that's so much harder to explain to people. I was sitting in an executive meeting at an institution once, and they were talking about just search engine optimization. And one of the executives said, oh, no, we already do that. There's a search bar on the website when you go to our homepage. And that's the level of sophistication that sometimes uh, individuals are dealing with when we're talking about some of the new digital marketing strategies that are available. And uh, a lot of these folks came of age in higher ed when name buying and list buying and search campaigns were the thing to do and the novel thing to do. And so they're familiar with it. They understand how it works. It feels like it's really easy to do. And uh, a lot of times it is actually sort of, uh, hey, let's wash our hands of this, particularly if you're working with a search vendor who's doing your fulfillment and maybe even doing the marketing and branding for you. You almost don't have to do anything. That's a really appealing proposition to people who don't understand how to do a lot of the complex work that has to happen in the contemporary marketing environment. Yes, I feel like, you know, we're talking a lot about the the dangers or the risks of list buying, but I, I want to make clear that you're not necessarily advocating for eliminating the practice altogether, just uh, about getting smarter in terms of how we go about our list buying. There is always a place for list buying in any marketing mix. I and institutions use list buying for lots of different purposes. So it's always really dangerous if, when someone like me says, hey, institutions shouldn't be list buying. What it really means is institutions should really be doing list buying in much more strategic ways, and they should stop doing what they're currently doing. Uh, so you see a lot of institutions that move to uh, predictive modeling. So everybody buys the same regression model from uh, a vendor, and then they run that model on the names, and they purchase the names that are most likely to enroll. So that's a way to reduce list buying and be more strategic. 
where you see institutions that are really actually trying to hit a particular segment of the market and they aren't able to get reach for whatever reason there. And so this is a way to do that. But I really feel like this is sort of the option that you pursue when you've exhausted all of your other areas because it is such a short-term solution to a long-term problem. List buying is generally an acknowledgement that your branding and marketing campaigns didn't work. Like You didn't reach the students that you're trying to recruit for whatever reason you failed as an institution or we failed as an institution to reach those students. And now the only way to find them is to purchase their content and do the equivalent of cold calling or door-to-door salesmanship. And if people sort of cringe at that, they should, because that's what list buying is, is you're reaching out and you're straight up spamming students. And a lot of times you're spamming students who didn't opt into the process. If you look at the way that the SAT is proctored, for example, it doesn't say, do you want us to sell your information to colleges so they can market to you? Um, That's not what the proctor proctor says at the beginning when they're giving the instructions on how to fill out that section. So uh, it really is this acknowledgement that we were unable to do the thing that we were supposed to do. And so now we have to do this other thing that's going to provide us a short one-time fix for this particular class. But then if we don't make the long-term fix, we have to do it again next year and the year after that. And you get looped into this cycle where you have to do the name buys because you're not spending resources to build the brand or to build better engagement opportunities or to help students find you naturally. Uh, Half of juniors, for example, search for programs without actually using a branded keyword which to me is a huge market opportunity, particularly if you start segmenting that SEO and content strategy opportunities at a really local or zip code based level where you can actually focus in on how to develop content on your website that's actually going to be discovered by students when they're looking for it. So you don't even have to market to them. And if you've done those other fundamental things correctly, they're actually going to find your content, they're going to engage with it, and they're going to find it valuable and they're going to request information or start an application or take a virtual tour where you can collect their data or uh, you could start tracking them across different app environments. And that's really where the opportunity lies. I think most sophisticated institutions are working towards that model and trying to reduce their name by strategies. Hey, podcast listeners. If you're anything like me, you've likely found yourself listening to more and more podcasts lately. And if that's the case, you're not alone. Recent research shows that 26% of Americans now listen to podcasts monthly. That's higher than the percentage of Americans using Twitter. For many podcast consumers, the rise in podcast popularity has led to dreams of producing a branded podcast for their own institution. Unfortunately, the road to planning and producing a podcast isn't as straightforward as consuming one. Luckily, the team at eCity has just released a new ebook that details the aspects of podcasting that you need to consider before pressing the record button on your own show, as well as how to ask for help if you're struggling to get started. Grab the ebook now at eCityInteractive.com slash resources. That's eCityInteractive.com slash resources. And as always, thanks for listening. Okay, so again, oh, I mean, we've talked about list buying now, and and we've already gotten into this topic certainly um, at a high level. But I do want to think, you know, talk a little bit more about why we should be second guessing the, you know, list buying, name buying, search buys. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of different reasons that we can get into the nitty gritty here. But I guess first, 
you know, from an overview, from a high level perspective, you know, what are some of the bigger reasons that we should be second guessing the way that we buy our names? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, one of the first and foremost is the ethical considerations that are involved. Um, then there are the legal implications of list purchasing and the way we market to students on those lists. Then ultimately you get down at the end of the day to cost considerations and not just the straight up hey, it's expensive to do this work costs, but the cost of uh, morale in the recruitment office, the long-term PR cost of getting the brand diluted by short-term messaging, and some of the opportunity costs of where those dollars could be better spent. The one that strikes me as probably most serious are the legal and ethical concerns. And, and of course, you know, to the best of my knowledge, you are not a lawyer, but let's let's talk about some of those um, legal implications. And I would imagine that this is of particular importance since we know that GDPR is uh, now in effect and probably in some way, shape or form coming to the good old U.S. of A. How long until California passes their regulations uh, that are going to be similar to GDPR? That's really going to fundamentally change how institutions uh, market. One of the things that's interesting is when you start talking about the legal stuff, and I'm definitely not a lawyer, it's interesting because most mail services, especially the big, large, reputable ones, the MailChimps, the constant contacts, the campaign monitors, the HubSpots of the world, they actually have expressed language in the contracts that institutions have signed that, have signed that says they won't use purchase lists. And that's a really interesting place to be. Like if you read the fine print of those contracts, they don't allow organizations, businesses, nonprofits to use purchase lists. They have tons of resources on how you can build your list organically, but they don't really want you doing that. And I, my sense is that there are either risk managers not paying attention or people not really reading the fine print. It's not even the fine print because so we use HubSpot. HubSpot, when you import a list, they've got you know, four four boxes and they're asking you certain questions and you have to put your initials in, you know, some of those questions are, I have not purchased this list. These people expect to hear from me. So it's not even fine print for some of these pieces of software. There's no getting around. You can't even use the excuse of, uh, you know, I didn't read the legal terms. It's right there before you can even click import. Oh, yeah. And that's entirely because what the minute they get sued by Canada or the European Union or somebody else, they get to pass that uh, savings directly on to you. And it's phenomenal that higher ed still does this because you you look at the way that they work. They don't want to get blacklisted, of course. Um, and so that's a huge thing to have your email server get blacklisted means nothing gets delivered. But even to be gray listed in the email space where you're where your communications are being flagged as potential spam and ending up in spam inboxes or the, the promotions inbox inside of Gmail. It's a huge issue for institutions. Um, a secret shop, like I mentioned earlier, a couple hundred a year. And I think institutions would be really surprised to see who ends up in the inbox and who ends up in spam. And it's largely, I suspect, a result of the list that they're using to market. You know, aside from just the the blatant disregard for the fine, you know, the fine print or the terms of service, what are some of the larger policies or um, or just laws that you're trying to follow where you are at your institution? Yeah, so we pay attention to GDPR. Uh, we're also really close to Canada, and so we have uh, a sizable number of students who are inquiring from Canada. And so the can uh, can spam laws. Um, 
in, in the United States are pretty gentle, but the castle laws up in Canada are not very gentle. They're uh, actually quite regular. So that's Canada's anti-spam law. Uh, the offenses for that, I think, start at $16,000 wow. per single email offense. Um, and I know a lot of institutions probably think, yeah, that's what are the odds that that's going to happen to me? But I'm also pretty sure that's what institutions thought when they said, hey, what are the odds that somebody's going to hit me up with a lawsuit for the lack of subtitles on my YouTube videos or the lack of accessibility on my website. And then you've got edX and MIT and Harvard and Hofstra and Manhattan College all going through lawsuits for exactly those things. So from a risk management standpoint, uh, Castle is a big one. Uh, The fines for GDPR are also going to be pretty immense. And then the one that's sort of interesting to think about Um, is COPRA. So that's the uh, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And that applies to students who are younger than 13. Uh, So most of the time, institutions aren't buying the the names of students who are younger than 13. But you think about the ways that institutions do have access to young students' data in the form of camps or some of the group visits or some of the programs that they might be running. And that, that becomes a really big challenge about how to, do, how to manage that data in a way that's both legal and ethical. Uh, because even if something is technically legal, um, more, than, more often than not, parents don't feel that the way that institutions reach out to their students is a really helpful part of the process. And so there's the straight up legal fines and regulations that need to be followed, but then there's the actual, hey, like even if we're doing everything by the book, uh, parents don't always see following the law the same as doing good work. I mean, so if that's the legal, what about the ethical? Jens, because I feel like there's also this idea of, again, you know, we've talked about this again, you know, the beyond the fact that students maybe didn't opt in or definitely didn't opt in in this case and and ask for your information, you know, I think there's also probably just a missed opportunity, especially for schools who are targeting maybe first generation or lower income uh, potential students who who aren't as sophisticated, uh, maybe are taking the SAT later. Can you talk about some of those aspects? Yeah, so um, if you've been following John Beckenstedt at all, so like you kind of have to start with the question, is the SAT or testing itself, is that even an ethical practice alone? And it's really interesting. Institutions are more than happy to go to test optional, but test optional institutions still buy names. So there's this sense that we have this apparatus in place that exists largely for us to market. Um, and that's its almost sole function. I mean, if we're worried about predictability, GPAs are just as predictable as test scores in a lot of cases. So there's that, that issue. Then there's a question in that you brought up, like, who takes these tests and who fills out this information? Is it uh, adult students who need to come back to college? Is it transfer students who are looking for a better fit? Is it uh, students who are low income and don't unnecessarily understand what it means to take the SAT as a junior or a sophomore and are waiting until sometimes the spring of their senior year to get their test scores done? Um, those students aren't being marketed to. Uh, SAT, for example, runs a program where you can purchase the names of students from underrepresented populations for zero cost. So it's not really a purchase. Uh, but you can get those names. Like, well, what service does that actually provide to the students? 
Um, are institutions reaching out to them with additional opportunities to get college ready? Are they reaching out with additional scholarship opportunities? So it kind of ignores, list buying in a lot of cases, ignores this, this obligation um, that I think higher education has to provide something of value to the people that we work with and the communities that we serve. It tends to reduce individuals to straight up marketing. In the most cynical scenarios, like institutions purchase names so they can pad their rejection rates, so they can generate more applications and generate more rejections. And it's unlikely that we'll ever know how many institutions do that, but the fact that it's talked about at, at places like NACAC um, or in marketing circles as something that happens is a sign that, you know, this is not always an ethical practice. I think as well, like, we ignore a lot of the students who really do need college experiences or need to better understand the college experiences. And instead, what we give them is marketing. Um, we're not concerned about fit so much as we are about making the class or shaping the class. And sometimes fit can factor into that, but it's hard to understand how a student who is looking at it potentially going to college is served by 20 institutions all marketing uh, their message to that student. Uh, it's really interesting when you start thinking about it from a public university or a public supported institution perspective, because these are places where state dollars are going to marketing and recruitment and often going to different institutions to do the same work. A good example is we have a competitor down the road who uses the exact same vendor that we do, uh, that runs the same messaging and list buy strategies that we do, and tax dollars are going to both of those institutions to do that work. It's just ridiculously inefficient. One of the last things that's really interesting about this question is that uh, as marketers, we have an ethical obligation to the brand that we serve, yet oftentimes when we purchase names, we outsource the fulfillment of the, those campaigns and even the production of the collateral uh, for those campaigns. And again, because I see so much of the marketing materials come through from these list, list vendors, the brand gets heavily diluted at all stages of this journey. I can tell you that when I'm being marketed by certain campaigns, I know that, oh, here's the first deadline email. And then I'm going to get another deadline email in two weeks where they've extended my deadline and another one two weeks after that where they've extended it again. And it's just like clockwork because it's the same thing that every institution is doing because they're being served by these vendors. And it makes me wonder what the long-term ramifications of that are. It's a really short-term marketing strategy that really takes a cynical look at list building in general and uh, engagement in general, because we say it's embracing the churn. It's essentially saying, hey, we're going to use up this resource of students. And then if we can't get them to convert, we're going to be done with them. Like the marketing approach we're going to take is, uh, is, is a torch campaign where we're just going to light everything afire. If we can get them to run towards us, we'll be done. But if not, um, we'll, we'll let it go and be, and be done with them that way. And I'm not sure that serves brands in the long term. Hey everyone, the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast is part of Connect EDU, a podcast network bringing together brilliant minds in the higher ed space and breaking down silos. You can check it out at connectedu.network where you can find great shows no matter where you work on campus, as well as resources for first time and long time podcasters. 
You can also follow along on Twitter at ConnectEDUPod and hashtag ConnectEDU. Jens, I feel like you've you've talked a lot about right the from a financial perspective, right? The the, the problem with ROI, um, conversion rates, uh, the, you know, bounce rates, just in terms of of having accurate email addresses and actually reaching the person uh, for whose whose name you're buying. Um, I, I want to make sure that we we get to cover alternative methods that that you would recommend in this podcast, and that we don't just spend our entire time, um, you know, criticizing this this one marketing tactic. So. If there's someone out there who's like, "Look, I'm going to do list buying because that's what that's what I've always done," um, you know, educate us on on what some of the alternative and more um, you know more ethical marketing practices are. Yeah, so it's important to note that I really do come from a background um, outside of higher ed, where the strategy was we provide valuable content that people discover, and it builds incredible lifetime value for our customers, and we in turn increase our sales and margins by building customers who are satisfied and want to engage with us again and again and again. And I think higher ed can do a lot more of that. Higher ed is a fascinating industry, super complex, but it's one of the few places where organizations have been building fan bases for decades. Like that's entirely what most contemporary marketing is trying to do now. It's like, how do you not just get customers, but how do you build a fan base that talks about you, promotes you, and wants to share your, your content and your information. And higher ed's been doing that, but it's happened largely not because we were trying to do it, but because that's the way higher ed works. And I think if we're really intentional about that, it can be pretty dramatic. I like to start with SEO, because I imagine if some of these organizations that are spending millions of dollars on their search campaigns, if they drop millions of dollars into competing for certain keywords in SEO, it'd be so amazing. I get kind of Willy Wonka-like fantasies of <laughs> like uh, how great it would be. Um, so that's an easy place to start. Um, in search engine marketing and uh, PPC or P- um, those sort of activities, institutions can always do more of. I think a lot of it, though, comes from being able to do the types of activities that foster long-term relationships and frictionless engagement. So when you go to websites, it should be really easy for students to do a lot of the task management that they wanna do. Uh, Bob Johnson writes about this all the time in terms of allowing students to do the things they wanna do on your digital platforms. Um, And we don't always do that. And so they end up at college search sites because they do allow it. Um, but like we make it so hard to request information or to sign up for tours or to make sure that they're getting applied for scholarships. All of these things can be made so much more frictionless. Uh, a lot of times, too, we don't do a lot of long-term brand building exercises that really work. And some of this comes down to how we market to counselors, high school counselors and college uh, recruit or independent counselors. Uh, both of those areas are underserved in terms of the way institutions market. But to market to them, you can't go out and do the types of things that we do with list buying. They, We talk to a lot of high school counselors and independent counselors about the activities that we do with our students. And they're just as cynical as we are. Like they see all the junk mail that shows up and they know that, hey, you're recruiting a student that has no opportunity to get into your institution. And it's because you purchased their name from a list and uh, they miss 
they misstated their GPA or they misstated their college intentions. And you're not savvy enough to know that. Um, the high school counselor is more than happy to tell us that, but we wouldn't find it out if we're not engaging at a fundamental level. There's other ways to like better video strategy. Institutions typically uh, don't have any engagement inside of their videos. So you get to the end of the video and there's no call to action, no opportunity to subscribe or to watch another playlist or to go to a website. Uh, we talk about social media a lot. Um, institutions don't do a whole lot of social media listening and they generally understaff their content production areas uh, pretty dramatically. Now, this doesn't apply if you get to be like a CSU or a large public or an elite institution where you have the resources for these things. But at a lot of institutions, they're simply not funding those types of activities. Uh, there's an opportunity to do more with experiential events, um, particularly for younger students who want to get into this space. I think that's one of the reasons why you see so many institutions moving towards offering summer camps, particularly elite institutions, because it provides them a way to build a pipeline of future students who are engaging with the brand year after year after year and are engaging in the types of activities that they know will be uh, helpful to them in getting students to apply, but ultimately to persist and graduate. Then as well, there's the simple content building strategies that uh, people should be deploying, like actually developing content that is not strictly about the transactional nature of the college search process, but about uh, the sort of emotional and uh, personal connection that students have with an institution. Institutions, by and large, don't do a whole lot of that work. And um, again, some institutions with lots of resources do, but other institutions don't even know to start that conversation. What about for you personally, Jensen? And, and and I shouldn't say when I say you personally, of course, you know, I'm talking about you and your role at Eastern Washington University. You know, what are some of the steps that you've taken that you have found uh, particularly helpful and, and, and impactful um, in terms of you know, organic lead gen? Yeah, so this is really interesting. When I started at Eastern Washington University, it was I'd like to think that we're more sophisticated now than we were then. Um, we've had our six largest classes um, since I started, uh, so that feels pretty good. And uh, we've changed our mix a bit, which also really helped. So uh, from a success standpoint, I think a lot of what we do works. Uh, one of my favorite things that we started doing is we just call it break the website. And so we take a lot of the questions that our front desk staff get, and then we try to answer them just by doing a Google search and then navigating the website, uh, which is how most of our younger students are going to be engaging with us. And if they can't do that really successfully, then we know we have not generated the content that they need to be successful. So uh, one of the ones that was really interesting is that we have a really active pride center on campus that does phenomenal work with our LGBTQA plus students. What was interesting is that it was completely undiscoverable except through Google. And so one of the first things that we did was uh, drive, ways, drive ways that we could create content that would be more discoverable on Google as well as lead them to the places deeper in the website that might not have the same search recognition. So in the first year, we saw 20% increases in almost all of those areas, saw our bounce rates decline, and did a lot of work just to create some of those some of that content to fill the gaps that we had unintentionally created as an institution. Uh, the other thing that it allows you to do is it really lets to see where your processes are breaking. So institutions 
uh, don't often ask their front desk staff uh, about their website experiences. They tend to go towards their marketers or maybe do uh, some student work or some surveys. And, but what ends up happening is your front desk staff deal with all the stuff that is broken. In fact, they almost never deal with any of the standard stuff. They 80% of their time is spent dealing with problem cases of people who couldn't do what they wanted on your website. And uh, focusing on what's broken in that way is a really positive uh, experience. Um, and it also allows them to provide feedback and to see their feedback being implemented. And so it provides them ownership in the website. They're much more likely to report problems. Uh, they're much more likely to ask for things, all of which helps identify content areas that are missing at the institutional level. Uh, I think some of the other things that we've done that have been really helpful is we started to reconfigure a lot of the surveys that we were sending, particular post-event surveys, to ask students not if we done enough to satisfy them, but if we'd, uh, but how we'd actually failed to meet their expectations. Um, and that's made us really, really good at events. So this year, we doubled event attendance for the third straight year in a row. And we actually saw our melt uh, rates decline by about another 20 to 30%, depending on the event. So those are really positive outcomes simply from changing the way that we market our events and follow up with our events and then ultimately end up structuring and organizing the events. So uh, those types of activities are really low cost, but are really fundamental uh, about developing content and processes that students are engaging with online. Uh, some of the other things that are really fun to do um, it's just a secret shop your competitors. We actually took all of the campus tours at uh, the institutions in Washington State this year. Uh, and we are future students at a lot of our competitors. And it allows you to leapfrog them. I know a lot of time people talk about we need to be as good as our competitors, but the goal should always be to leapfrog them, to get ahead of them so that they're playing a game of catch up with you. And a lot of times what that means is you're developing content and processes that make it easier for students. I think one of the fascinating areas where higher ed fails dramatically is providing instructions and directions on how to get to campus and where to park for a campus tour. So campus tours, hands down, one of the most successful ways to get students through the process. I mean, our conversion rates, um, when we're doing really good, we can push them up to 85%. Last year is where we hit for, took a tour, applied and came to the institution. Like, that's where we want to be. Like, I think industry average is probably close to 65%. But one of the simple things to do is how do you, can you provide email content, um, sign-up experiences, and promotional experiences that demonstrate that you've taken time to get the small things right? Like, you've made it easy to park. You've made it easy to pay for parking. You've made it easy to find where they're going. And a lot of this ends up crossing all of your digital platforms and a lot of your physical platforms. So it's campus signage. It's uh, the email reminders that you send out. It's your check-in processes. It's your sign-in processes. And then it's your promotional opportunities. Like, what makes your campus tours unique or different? Um, and then how can you structure them in a way that you're actually showcasing things that your competitors aren't even talking about? And those are some really just simple things that don't require a huge expenditure, but are fundamentals. One thing we also did over the last few years is we changed the tone of our marketing. 
Um, MailChimp um, is a fascinating company, but they had this tone and style guide. I think it's changed names since then. But they talk about the way that they want to engage with their customers and how you handle customer concerns. And we kind of adapted a similar approach. So we developed an in-house content voice and style guide for the way that we promote and market ourselves to institutions or market ourselves to students. Um, and we know it works. Like we, So we do list buys like everybody else, um, but we push really hard for a list buy vendor to not use the same marketing tone that they were using in other places. And compared to every other client that they were working with last year, we outperformed by about 80%. And it's not because we did anything dramatically different. It's because we understood how our students were navigating the process, like what their customer journey was like, and tried to mimic the tone so that we were humorous when we needed to be, helpful when we needed to be, serious and stern when there was an issue, and understanding when there was a problem. And finding ways to do that so that uh, when people find your content, they feel welcomed and that they actually end up finding your content because you've done the other things right. Like those things really do drive long-term enrollment success because I don't have to worry about doing that again next year. I can just worry about improvement. I don't have to go through the process all over again. It's we fix this thing, we can move on and now we're in the iterative phase. Whereas with name buys, I have to buy the name every year, run the models every year, go out to market every year and then just keep doing it over and over, it doesn't allow me any chance to sort of take back and rest on the rest on my laurels and move on to the next thing. So Jens, I feel like, you know, in, in listening to, to the alternative methods that you laid out earlier, and then certainly in listening to the things that you've done at Eastern Washington, right, you've, you've made a great case um, for, for dialing back our list buying, dialing up some of our uh, more organic marketing methods. I guess the question for you, and and I know we've touched on this a little bit already in the show, but you know, is there one reason, one common reason that you think more schools are hesitant to dial back their list buying and and invest more in these organic channels? Yeah, and I think it comes down to the sense that it feels risky. Um, it's not well understood. Um, it's not always clear how the ROI gets calculated if you're not familiar with those channels. It typically requires lots of collaboration. Um, You might have to work with new vendors who aren't tested or who are operating in a space where higher ed hasn't operated before. So you're reaching out to agencies that understand how interactive websites work. You're reaching out to agencies who understand the customer journey. Um, You're reaching out to agencies who are really focused on emotional marketing. And those things feel new and risky. particularly to people who are familiar with something that worked in the 1980s and 90s. And while list buying won't ever go away because legacy strategies always exist, we'll always do billboards, we'll always do radio spots, we'll always do television ads, as long as those media exist, uh, there's an opportunity to move some of those dollars into areas that provide higher return. And simply changing the marketing mix and changing the funding strategies so that a portion of the budget is set aside to try new things each year and see how they compare to list buying will ultimately make people more comfortable with investing in content strategy, SEO, uh, and long-term engagement practices or experiential marketing. Hey everyone, a quick shout out to the agency that makes this show possible, eCity Interactive. 
You know, I really do love coming to work every day at eCity, and that's not just because everyone shares my love of donuts. Uh, but that's really because I get to collaborate with a talented team working on everything from user experience to content and digital marketing to web design and development and a whole lot more. Our work has earned us an incredible roster of education clients, including the University of Pennsylvania, George Washington University, Petty School, Cornell, Drexel, Rutgers, and many others. So if you're looking to improve your web and digital presence and better communicate your school's story, visit us online at ecityinteractive.com and get in touch. This has probably honestly been one of the one of the longest episodes I think we've recorded on this show. But it's it's that way because I enjoyed the conversation and wanted to keep asking you uh, to share more information on a topic that, like I said at the top of the show, I care so much about, and, and clearly you do too. Um, so first and foremost, you know, I have to say thank you for for coming on the show and for not only talking about you know list buying and and the issues that arise with that tactic, but how you're combating that at Eastern Washington. So so thank you so much for joining the the hashtag Higher Ed podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. And before we let you go, of course, a couple of housekeeping matters that we handle every week on this show. Um, first of all, for those who want to learn more about what you've talked about today or or just learn about you a little bit more, where can listeners find you online? I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Google+, although I don't think anybody else in the world is on Google+, anymore. <laughs> uh, I blog at U of Admissions Marketing, although I blog less frequently than I used to. And if you really want to follow me as I trail run across Washington State, I'm on Instagram, too. And of course, each week on the show, we ask our guests to give a social shout out to a colleague or individual uh, that deserves a little bit more recognition of their work. And Jens, I know you came through and, and had someone in mind, so the floor is yours. Yeah, I, I want to give a shout out to Ray Brown, who runs College History Garden. Uh, it's this absolutely fascinating website that keeps track of college mergers, closures, and rebrands. Um, and in the same period, he'll be posting uh, historical articles about marketing uh, or postcards that institutions ran in their in their early days. Uh, he also talks a lot about how institutions use history and tradition in their branding and marketing campaigns. And it's one of those places uh, where it kind of feels like the original internet when everybody was just really excited to share something they were passionate about and they didn't have anything to sell. And so it feels really good to read the blogs and also to get some ideas and to see that a lot of the challenges that we face now are the same challenges that institutions have faced since the 1800s and before. So uh, Ray Brown, uh, College History Garden, highly recommended. Very cool. I did not know about Ray, and I definitely didn't know about College History Garden, so I will check that out. Um, if you're listening to the show, you should also check that out. Definitely connect with Jens and follow him uh, on Twitter and across his blog. Uh, Jens, thank you again so much for joining the show. Really looking forward to future conversations about this and other marketing tactics and following along with everything you're doing at Eastern Washington. And uh, we'll keep talking to you in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much. 